Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am joined once again by my friend Kari Anested, the Associate Director of the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits and Co-Director of Grant Advisors. Kari, thanks for coming back to the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. Um, I was thinking of, you know, one of the many experts I should reach out to to talk about uh, generative artificial intelligence and writing and all that. So there aren't any. There aren't any experts yet. We're we're as close as anybody's going to get. So, like, who do I know that would think about issues related to how we use tools like this in the nonprofit sector? I'm like, okay, maybe Kari would talk with me about it, and we'll just all acknowledge. Um, this is new. This does not have a lot of basis for everybody. Um, I have some terms I want to lay out, but before I do that, um, Kari, could you just um, introduce yourself for folks that may not uh, know about the, those two organizations that you're representing today? What is the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits? Uh, how does the work at Grant Advisor participate in our sector? Yeah, the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits is one of the largest nonprofit state associations in the United States. So we are obviously based in Minnesota. It's in our name. We have 2,300 nonprofit members spread across the state and a little bit into Wisconsin. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Uh, uh, And we do all sorts of things to make sure that nonprofit organizations have the resources they need to achieve their charitable mission. So we provide education, workshops and conferences, public policy and advocacy on behalf of the sector, uh, research, and sometimes some special things like Grant Advisor, the other uh, org that you mentioned. So Grant Advisor was launched a couple of years ago. Uh, MCN teamed up with two other nonprofit organizations based in California. Uh, California Association of Nonprofits and Great Nonprofits. And we launched this anonymous review site of grant making foundation. So if you haven't heard about it yet, I encourage you to go to grantadvisor.org and share an experience that you've had recently with a with a foundation or uh, read what other experiences have been. It's a wonderful tool, and I really do encourage people to check it out. Contribute some knowledge. Uh, you do uh, um, have the ability to be anonymous there, so you don't have to worry about, oh, gosh, if I say something that's maybe too truthful, that would hurt my chance with a grant maker later. And that's not how that tool works. It's really good to help everybody provide honest, uh, frank, useful feedback. And, of course, the the grant makers themselves have the opportunity to come back and say, you know, we heard that feedback, and we actually have a disagreement about this, and I want to share why. Why, or we understand that point and we're working on it, but it's a good open communication transparency moment for us as charities and the funders that help make some of that work possible to try and do those things better. So grant writing is actually one of the things that got me to thinking about this topic of artificial intelligence uh, and how it is impacting a lot of what's happening in the charitable sector. Uh, Because I think as people hear about the idea of tools that are powered by AI that can be useful in their work, one of the ways we're starting to hear about it in a lot of places is around grant writing, that maybe you could get a start on your grant by using one of these tools, and now they're being integrated into so many different places. I want to just define a couple of words before we get started and then uh, ask Kari to jump in with some uh, observations so early in the use of this thing. Um, one of them is the the idea of artificial intelligence in and of itself. What do we mean by that? Because for years and years, lots of things have been calling themselves that, like, oh, this is an AI-driven this or an AI-driven that. Uh, and our fine friends over at Wikipedia uh, are, are helping to differentiate this by saying uh, that these are applications that uh, do things that would be able to be done by humans or other uh, non-human animals, like 
process uh, visual input, process speech, be able to differentiate between words and other pieces towards a, something that a, a, an animal might be able to use. So it really is replacing some of the things that we thought only animals could do with machine intelligence to do them. Uh, and that's a pretty broad field. So when you talk into your smart speaker or your phone and you ask it a question about, give me mapping directions to place X, Y, or Z, that ability to translate your words into something that the machine can then give you an answer from is a small example of artificial intelligence. So that's a general category of tools. Most recently, however, uh, this has become a, 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 a different type of conversation around things, starting mostly with ChatGPT, uh, which is a product of OpenAI, which was originally incorporated as a nonprofit. Uh, I believe technically still may be, although it sort of sold itself back to Microsoft for a period of time, and then eventually it may get back into the um, the nonprofit sector. But its origins aside, uh, ChatGPT is a specific type of this thing called a generative pre-trained transformer, GPT, which is a type of a large language model. And a lot of what we're talking about now is large language models when we are talking about AI in grant writing and helping to draft emails and thinking about web page content or any number of other things that a charity might use. A lot of the things where you go to one of these chat GPT like boxes and say, write me a grant application from charity X to foundation Y for a specific program that does this. And if you put those inputs in, that large language model takes that input and tries to uh, produce a logical sequence of words that, that mimics what you're asking it to do. It's not quite the same thing as an intelligent writer, but boy, it comes close in a lot of cases. And there's why people sometimes think, wow, look at this artificial intelligence really researched and answered my question. And it's like, well, it's the world's most sophisticated autocomplete. That's for sure, right? It has jumped in with its very, very large language model and by very large billions of samples of words running together as it reads things on the web and other electronic resources, including books, magazines, whatever, and says, when people talk about grants, I have this many examples of grants to pull from. So when you ask me to write a grant, I'm going to look at the language structures of those other tools, and I'm going to see predictably what might make sense in how sentences form, how words flow together, and pull together a response for you. And if the query that you're doing is simple enough and talked about enough, it's remarkable what you can pull together on the other side. So it makes sense to me that people are very impressed with ChatGPT and many processes that are like that, that are now available. But I also want to mention that it is, as far as I can determine so far, the fastest adopted technology in all of human history. Um, it has uh, gone from zero to over 100 million regular users in just a few months. Uh, we are now talking about um, uh, breaking a billion regular users of this tool as it rolls out into things like Microsoft's native operating system and whatnot. Uh, but many people still don't quite understand the output of the tools, uh, including the designers of the tools. Uh, they feed it a tremendous amount of information, a large language model, but then they can't always say, well, of course it came up with answer Y because it runs through this series of steps to get there. And unfortunately that information isn't just generally available to us. 
So we're at this inflection moment in the nonprofit sector and many other places too, where we're thinking, boy, we spend a lot of time writing grants. We spend a lot of time writing blog posts. We spend a lot of time trying to connect to audiences through white papers and uh, explainers and all sorts of other ways. And what if we could speed that whole process up with these tools? What would that look like? And I think that's a really great question, but I also want to um, ask Kari to kind of jump in right about now about the ideas of why might we pause a little bit and think about what that might look like. So Kari, I don't know if you have any intro comments you want to make, or if you want to jump into specific examples, how would you like to begin attacking that big question? Yeah, that is a huge question. And I so appreciate the pause and that and the disclaimer at the beginning that I am not an expert in AI, but I've been right. doing a lot of doom scrolling about <laughs> <laughs> so I've got I can speak to that. No, I think, you know, with any tool there's an argument to be made that tools can be neutral. It's just how you put them to use. And so mm -hmm. part of it is how could this be put to use for good? And you know, one way in which I could see that is uh, nonprofit organizations expend, as you were naming, so much time and energy competing for dollars from foundations. And often there are a lot of nonprofit organizations who may be eligible for those funds, but don't have the administrative capacity, the staffing, the time, right, to be able to even put pen to paper to get that first draft. And so I could imagine a world where nonprofit organizations use this for, you know, a first draft to get just something started, to get the ball rolling, to help cut out some hours out of their workday in order to compete in what is, for the most part, a pretty time and resource uh, significant uh, undertaking in terms of how you compete for grant dollars. Uh, so maybe that's like the one pro that I could see when I was thinking, mm -hmm. sitting down and really trying to think through what are ways when we think about what's required of nonprofit organizations, what are barriers that we face, and how could this tool be used toward making pathways to funding a little more accessible or equitable. Um, just as a brief aside, one of the things that Grant Advisor took on was we read through all 2,500 reviews that had been written on our website as of 2020. Uh, and we looked and thought, you know, this is an opportunity for folks to say, anything they want to about what the state of grant writing and grant seeking is like. And when we analyzed those reviews, we found that one of the most common uh, concerns was the design of grant applications and report forms, right? You'd think if you could say anything that people were going to talk about power differentials and right, all these big higher level things, but no, it was like word and character limits and having to translate a budget from your organization's template into a funder's template. So we did sort of a deeper survey of folks and we got 500 responses from people in nine countries and said, here's what the pain points are as identified in these reviews, help us rate them and talk about the impact. And what we found in this, uh, all of this work was that folks were reporting on average 20 to 30% of their time of a full-time role was spent filling out grant applications and report forms. It wasn't even necessarily doing the work of the nonprofit organization, but in a mm -hmm. tremendous amount of time and energy going into, um, into these administrative processes. So maybe, maybe AI tools are helpful in that way. Uh, but I think there are a, a bunch of causes for concern uh, as well. Uh, I think about sort of the well-documented uh, 
examples of cultural bias that come into play with the use of technology like this. Uh, I was calling to mind back in 2018, MCN had a keynote speaker at our ComTech conference, and her name was Camille Eddy, and she was really on the forefront of some of this work at the time um, to examine as AI tools were coming into their genesis, instances of sexism and racism, because ultimately, right, the tool, the machine is learning based on the information that is being put into it. Um, So in a lot of ways, common practices, right, that just keep getting perpetuated aren't necessarily the thing that we want to see in the end, right? That's not necessarily the best practice. So she had lifted up uh, examples from Google when they were first rolling out their facial recognition software and being able to kind of tag things within pictures. Some of the early models actually recognized black individuals and tagged them as gorillas. And the response from Google was to just remove the gorilla tag. And so nothing in any photo could be tagged as a gorilla, right? And so that's just an example of these tools uh, that are based off of kind of unfiltered, unedited, unguided, human data, right, may yield things that we don't necessarily want as a society. And so how do we grapple with that? And who's in charge? This is a question I ask every day. <laughs> Who, who's in charge, Steve? <laughs> and this is the biggest problem as the technology around large language models has um, rolled out more and more and more competitors and more and more um, options are are being developed to create new versions of this thing that will have their own rules and their own pieces. And uh, when we talk about things like um, Microsoft integrating this into Bing and its search engine, uh, it has tried to put some guardrails up to prevent it from spinning down, you know, horrible uh, misanthropic rabbit holes, because when allowed to maintain the same information and the same series of questions on a series over and over and over again, the language model just starts going deeper into the internet. And it doesn't take long to find the hate speech out there. And then it starts bringing that into its responses because it doesn't hate, it doesn't think, it doesn't know anything except a series series of responses when properly queried will eventually find this kind of very difficult language that is out on the web and it's going to surface it up to somebody that didn't even know that was there and maybe doesn't even know how wrong it is and starts you know giving you this as if it's a factual answer and here's one of those areas where we as communicators and and supporters of nonprofit missions i think have to really be particularly cautious and careful of uh who is in charge of which language model because if we look at chat gpt as kind of the biggest player out there right now although google's bard is out there and we've got all sorts of other pieces that will come and go um i think if we look at those pieces and and see what's happening with them uh we we can see some guardrails around what they're trying to do, but it's also not hard to then go in with what we do know and test how good this thing is at talking about what we do in our sector. So if it limits it to say it can't um, establish a, a, a too long of a thread because these threads that go too long tend to delve into these very difficult spaces about what being human means and this machine gets it wrong and has all sorts of things. If we go in and test that shallower water on something like ChatGPT, now we're not necessarily seeing direct hate speech, but your your point is really well taken about 
uh, how culturally appropriate, understanding, um, expansive in definition, thoughtful is this thing when it's mostly just refeeding stuff from the web back to it? And if those voices are not the majority of the web at this point, because they are so overwhelmed with other voices on the web, then if we use this machine to generate some of those first answers, it's going to start from places of more uh, commonly found words and phrases that might not represent that experience. And that gives me pause as to what does it look like? So uh, have you had a chance to to play with this at all yourself, Carrie? Have you like asked it some questions just to see what answers it would come back with? Yes, I had it write me a Brandy Carlyle song. Oh, all right. Because <laughs> I wanted to see. I was like, can it write music? What does that look like? And sure enough, it had a very beautiful, not, it's not quite to the caliber of Brandy Carlyle. No, nobody can be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but and I've heard of other nonprofit leaders like using it as a first draft to develop internal policies, right? Because mm-hmm. some of these things tend to be more templated and you don't necessarily need to invest a lot of precious time and energy in like reimagining what a driver consent form looks like. Uh, yeah. But that's as far as I've gone. Well, and I've, I've tried it a little bit with things that uh, I feel like are not talked about as much in, in big web spaces. Cause if you ask it, you know, what's two plus two, that's all over the internet. It knows that information from all of the examples and it can pull that together. But if your mission, your work is not, terribly well described by other people out there. It's a really important um, observation and understanding of these tools as nonprofit communicators to to go, it's going to go look for that highest common denominator. What's the, the most common way people talk about this and not necessarily the nuance, the understanding or whatnot you are. So an example that I have from just playing around with this earlier is not related so much to nonprofit missions as an area that I um, do spend time listening to, thinking about and reading about that maybe isn't as common, which is differentiating cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and all those sorts of things from the idea of decentralized finance as a concept. So DeFi and crypto are talked about, but crypto is talked about way more on the web. So you go to one of these agents and I've tried it a couple of times and like, write me a blog post differentiating these two ideas. And it really can't do it. Uh, it mentions DeFi, but it doesn't understand it in the same context that it understands crypto because there's just way more talk about crypto. So if my mission here is to educate a public around, you know, hey, you may have heard of this very common thing, but we have this mission that, you know, is important and understands it. And if you ask it to talk about that thing for you, it's going to put it in the terms of the highest common denominator and not necessarily something that you know or understand. That actually can, every now and again, be a useful exercise, and I've looked at it for the grant writing lens, too, to say, uh, you know, describe Charity X uh, mission in 2,000 characters or in 500 words or whatever thing, um, and let it see what it pulls together, because often it's just going to go to your website and copy some text that you've already had because it has access to that and your name is unique and all those things. That doesn't help us much. We could go to our own websites and copy the the text that we've already written. That's not terribly useful. Um, But if you do give it something more specific to say, uh, you know, talk about the experience of first generation college students in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, you know, applying for 
uh, for entrance into schools for the first time or something like that, where that might be part of your mission, but maybe you don't have as much language around what's their experience as a user like. I know what it's like to be the admissions officer, but I don't really know the user experience. You might be able to find some things from admission essays or other things that have been vetted online that surface some ideas for you to go, oh, right. Those are things I've heard that I think are important to share in this application. Oh, right. That's a really useful piece of information that can help me start. So, Kari, I think you mentioned the idea of, you know, using this as a writing prompt uh, to give you some thoughts. And wh what do you think about, you know, thinking of those ideas in terms of generating a place for a person to start from and maybe saving them some time that way? Love that idea so much, Steve. And I feel like that just adds a whole other layer to the public conversation right now about fundraising and AI, like the ways in which you can use fundraising. Because currently it stops at that level of like, write me an appeal for this organization for this much to this audience, but it doesn't go to the level of, and maybe make it asset-based, right? Like maybe think about the populations who are most impacted by this nonprofit organization's work and their experiences and how you can frame that as, as an entry point for a different approach to an appeal instead of just continuing to perpetuate sort of the, the, the rote templates and fundraising that tend to exist that, that exacerbate this deficit-based approach that, you know, there's poor people or poor populations that need the help of the savior nonprofit organization, right? Mm -hmm. Like, are there ways in which we can use a tool like this to disrupt those um, highest common denominator is the term I think you use, like the yeah. most commonly cited or used language or approach? That's one of my biggest concerns about using these tools right now. If If we ask it to you know, give us a good writing example is it's going to look for the most common writing examples, not necessarily the good ones, uh, and find things that, you know, it sees as thumbed up or rated well, or, you know, this Reddit user mentioned that and all kinds of people commented on it. So it's probably a good example of what's going on. Um, and again, as a writing prompt, maybe that's not a bad place to start. If you're running into that place of this particular application is asking me to talk about things in a way that I'm not as familiar with. And, you know, if you've done grant writing for a long time, several of those questions you've answered so many times, you're probably already copying and pasting, but from your own earlier work, right? You're not asking ChatGPT to do it. You're going to your own work and go, I've already talked about what our mission is in 500 words, so I can give you that information. That's fine. But if I get a, a more unusual question uh, of you know, how am I integrating data analytics into a program change for this conversation? I'm like, well, that's a good question that I haven't had to answer before. How do other people talk about that? Let me go to this large language model and just ask it to tell me how other people would answer that question. And then maybe you see, oh, these two or three ideas are really good and I understand them and we do that. These other two things are completely wrong and maybe I should address that right now in this uh, grant application, because if I don't kind of help uh, dispel some myths, these other people may not understand that this commonly thought of thing that this machine just threw at me is clearly the wrong answer. And I need to be able to address that. Maybe there's some use in that tool, but I, I'm not sure how much time it's saving um, because we're, we're still going to have to rewrite what it wrote but maybe it helps us at least get outside of that trap of, I'm not sure how to answer that question. And and there maybe is a use case. I think that's absolutely right. And as you were talking, I've 
I started to go into the bigger existential spaces of like, mm-hmm. who defines good, right? right. <laughs> like, who gets to say what's good writing? And that's maybe the the core of the AI crisis, right? Is uh, how do, we've we've become so entrenched into these echo chambers around what we believe and who we listen to and who we talk to and what our perspectives are. And suddenly that's maybe the power and the promise of an AI model is that it can potentially unify or bring all of those narratives into one place but there is this question like of who's defining what truth is and oh my gosh and i think if you ask the machine for some specific examples of i want more inclusive language writing um for my audience i want to make sure you know you've got to remember to put those prompts in it's not going to do it on its own so if you are are working for an organization that is very specifically cognizant of uh evolving ideas of what gender and society is, um, then you may need to tell that machine, I need you to answer this question um, with the perspective of people um, not defined in a single gender binary um, or something and let it try that. Uh, Again, it may not get it right, but at least you've got to give it that starting point. Uh, I think, Kari, you mentioned this idea of if you give it a prompt to say, write a song in the style of a very famous person, there's enough language out there on the web to go back to that it can build a model around, that it can absolutely answer that question. But if you then come in and say, wow, the Karen community in Minnesota is going through a kind of a tertiary wave of immigration that's different from how it's happened before because of what's happening with their home government stuff. I want a perspective of what it's like to be a new American in this community now based on people coming from the former Myanmar regions. It's not going to have a lot to work with in those circumstances. There's not as much written into the internet on those first-person perspectives. There's Those conversations are happening, but they're not happening in languages that that machine understands. They're not being translated into spaces that it can bring in. So it may be able to then trip up a little bit and go, oh, right. I If you just said, talk to me about new American experiences uh, as immigrants, it's it's not going to give you the full picture of what's happening now. It's going to give you the highest common denominator picture that it can find and think that that's the right answer because it's a language model and that's what it does. So I think there's those things to think about in terms of our use of these tools. I think that grant writing is a specific example of where people are talking about trying to save some time right now, because right, tremendous amount of staff time, just constantly trying to reinvent the wheel around somewhat different questions, but sometimes, you know, they're not that different. But as we look at our desire to reach new audiences as nonprofit organizations, sometimes we are limited by our own staff capacity to say, I would really love to have this uh, translated into these languages because, you know, we we really want to be able to reach new audiences that don't speak whatever language our nonprofit is traditionally using. Can I use one of these models for that? Can I get it to translate for me? Can I get it to give me a better perspective? And again, until we've actually vetted some of those experiences, I don't know that we know that yet. Um, I, at least I'm not aware of any examples of, of folks saying, you know, I, I've suggested on a number of occasions, you can use Google Translate and you can do those things. And I get a lot of pushback from my friends and community going, those things don't have context. They don't do a good job. And maybe in some cases they're better than not doing it. But I've also heard from people that sometimes it's causing more harm than it is good to use an imperfect um, version of that. 
And I don't know where that part of our work rests yet with these tools. And I, I question our, our, our ability to kind of run headlong into let's write a lot more with lots and lots of new keywords and lots and lots of new ways of trying to get audiences connected and assume that the machine is going to get something right more often than not. And that is okay. So Kari, as you, as you think about some of those cases of trying to expand our capacity just in general communication, uh, you know, what, what have you been hearing from people about their needs to reach broader audiences and how do you think these tools could impact that? Yeah, well, just jumping quickly about what you had mentioned about, yeah, so Camille Eddy, she's a product engineer, she was a roboticist, comtech speaker back in 2018 at MCN. One of her biggest call to actions was uh, for participation in, in this work, so representation matters, getting narratives online. She had this great quote that not everyone is a developer, but we're all users. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of, well, one person's idea about how we can continue to hone and clarify these tools, right? These tools aren't going away. They're just going to continue to evolve and have deeper implementation. And so what are the ways in which we can ensure that we are helping be a part of crafting the narrative that is is being drawn upon and um, being used? Uh, Your question about nonprofit organizations with strapped capacity wanting to reach new audiences, this is... This is the this is the catch twenty two, right? Like you don't know who you don't know, and how do you break out of uh, sort of your your routine to reach new groups if if your routine is all that you've ever known? Uh, and how do you do that without increased funding? And part of how you get increased funding is writing the grant to get the <laughs> money to do the outreach, right? Right. So it's just this eternal like capacity trap. Uh, there are some, I think, moves in twenty. 20 and onward, the last three years of the pandemic, we saw funders start to do more general operating funding, kind of forgive or waive yeah. reporting requirements, right? Try to loosen some things up to ensure that nonprofit organizations have a little bit more flexibility and that the funding that they're receiving and and a little more uh, time back for mission advancing activities. I think there's a fear among some that that, that flexibility is going to go away. Uh, so that's part of kind of MCN's work is to keep lifting up the message know that no that flexible funding is good general operating unrestricted multi-year we need that sort of trust-based philanthropy is a uh, term that's used now it's an initiative kind of being led uh, to ensure that nonprofit or the foundations kind of adopt those types of practices so i don't know that there's a clear answer necessarily other than we're all we're all in it and we're all trying to figure it out Right. I think one of the the other challenges, and here's where I use the word ethics uh, in this, is um, if we choose to participate in this thing and we start feeding information into these machines and say, that's not right. I want you to rewrite it again this way. You're giving your free labor to get their models better. Um, Maybe that's not a bad thing, Uh, you know, but it's it's something to take a moment and say, uh, you know, who is participating in the creation of these things by feeding it more information, giving it more feedback to say, uh, that was great. Thanks. We're done for today. You know, the last thing you wrote um, is fine. And maybe that last thing you wrote is like, is so off base that I gave up and stopped using the tool. But now the machine is like, users satisfied. They left. They didn't ask any follow-up questions. It's all good. I got to use that information more often across my model. 
That's the feedback I just got um, versus, you know, I'm telling it to talk about a very specific new American community. And now it's starting to scan websites and and do more language understanding or whatnot, because I told it it got it wrong. Um, and, you know, if it's getting information from the government of Myanmar, maybe it's not getting stuff that I wanted it to have, but I'm participating in getting it to feed that particular mechanism. There's so much out there that it it just gives me this moment of what am I responsible for if I go in and start using this thing on a regular basis and providing it, you know, me as a free training data set? You know, what does that mean? Yes. And how is that information going to be used? What does informed consent look like to yeah. you as a user? Right? You think about I'm just paranoid right now that my phone is listening to everything that I'm saying <laughs> always cut one time I was like corn recipes corn recipes just to like not talking to anyone but just saying it aloud in the room and sure enough I swear to God Steve I got a corn recipe like uh, suggested to me so they're all listening I'm totally convinced but <laughs> but what are they doing with it right I mean if right. you know if there, there was this level of integrating these systems into our lives because we did find a direct benefit from it for ourselves as the user and like well you know if anybody else cares as much about you know those questions fine but the speed at which this thing is going and the scope at which this thing is going is so different from you know the first time i got uh, an amazon alexa device installed and it didn't do a lot of things very well um but you know it was great to be able to set timers hands free in the kitchen so fine you know i let it go for a while and now it is substantially better at a lot of questions that I ask and and information, but it's had years and years and years of training data uh, from me and all kinds of other users to get better at its job. If we're giving, you know, proportionately speaking, 100 million plus users giving it more training data all the time now by putting these things to work, maybe we make it better. Maybe not, uh, but but I would like to be able to feel somewhat assured that we knew which direction that was going in. And I'm I'm not 100% certain that if we try to take some shortcut advantage of these tools, even as writing prompts, um, that we're not contributing to an ecosystem that ultimately isn't designed to help us. Um, one more example I wanted to check in with you about, Kari, that, that is a little more concerning to me, this whole existential threat thing. When people talk about uh, pauses in AI development and whatnot as some kind of meaningful threat to um, humankind the way we understand it, you know, my, my first reaction to that is, well, then just unplug the machine. I mean, really, how hard is that? It's not, you know, we're, we're, it's not that difficult. Why are we so concerned? But as I learned more about it, it's not so much the machines that are the problem here. It's the idea that um, these language models are producing responses on an internet that's being used by billions of people every day. And those people are taking that information and doing things with it. And, uh, Putting, you know, somewhat difficult weapons of destruction into the hands of anybody that's, you know, out there typing things into a, a search engine on the web, uh, you know, they're they're again trying to find a couple of guardrails around things. You know, we we won't give you the recipe for napalm unless you ask the right way, 
in which case we will give you the recipe for napalm, but you just need to, you know, be able to skirt the machine a little bit. So I think that the concern about this isn't only, you know, us as users making a smarter version of something that's going to be used against us in some way in the future, uh, but that when other people are trying to understand, learn, change, do something, and they are getting wrong information and being led down very difficult paths, you know, if we're participating in those systems, are we actually helping those very difficult people make some wrong choices? And boy, that scares me too. And I'm not sure what to do about that feeling. Well, you've given fresh content for my nightmares. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I don't want to be a downer. I do want to be cautious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the challenges that I think we're we're facing here, uh, as we talk about um, very difficult tools being in, in the wrong people's hands, is if we build more powerful tools that can do more damage more quickly, um, it's not that the tool is the problem. It's the person that's going to use it that, unfortunately, we are seeing in many, many instances, there are um, really difficult, really hurt people out there that are making some very horrific decisions. And um, if they then try to employ this thing to propagate their viewpoint across other websites or to make it look like they've created a fake version of a website or a deep fake video or a whatever, that's where our existential problem rises. It isn't so much that the machine is going to suddenly decide it doesn't like humans anymore and uh, uh, try to do something difficult. I, I do think that it is much more possible that uh, as we are struggling with the ethics of using this thing, um, we, we've seen the, the problems of disinformation in elections in the last few years so up close, so personal, uh, that if we think about amplifying that problem of disinformation across other places in our lives, not even just elections, but but other things, um, that we could end up in, in problems that we haven't even forecasted or seen about. And I think that's more where that pause moment thing is coming from, is how are people going to be able to use these tools if we keep feeding them information that makes it more believable? Uh, you know, some of these things, when it when it went completely off the rails, you can go, oh, a machine wrote that and it got it wrong. I mean, it's just obvious to see. Uh, but now it's getting where you can't quite tell that the machine got it wrong, but it sure got it wrong. Uh, just listening this morning to a uh, discussion of a a lawyer being brought up on disciplinary charges because it submitted a brief that cited case law that doesn't exist because it cited case law that the GPT wrote up that sounded a lot like a case would be. You know, this is probably what a case sounds like, and that's what you're asking me. What would a briefing on this sound like? Here's what it sounds like. Did that person check their work to make sure that those were actual cases? No, they did not. Did the court figure it out? Yes, they did. That person's in a lot of trouble. You know, we certainly don't ever want to be in that place where we're relying on something that was written by a machine to say, oh, that, that that's a convincing argument. That's really good. And then you find out, Kari, to your earlier point, that's based on a horrible preconception or, you know, that's really leading people to think things that are not true. And, and we're propagating that. And that isn't going to be helpful for any of us in the future. So um, that 
bummer of a reality being in front of us, how do we start thinking about the the positive side of using these tools, of thinking through our engagement with them? Uh, Kari, as, as I asked you to start talking about this with me today, acknowledging neither of us are experts, do you have advice or thoughts for how people think about this or engage this idea as, as we start moving forward into a future that just keeps having more and more of these things happening? Yeah, you know, I'm encouraged by your example of the lawyer because it, he was caught, right? Like that that to me indicates that there still is some consensus around what is true and what is not and what is made up case law versus actual case law. Um, I think about the role of potential regulation. I mean, there's challenges there. Yeah. I think with any regulating body, we become so polarized that polarized that um one side believes that there's an agenda, right? And that the other side is trying to enforce through the acts of regulation. And so there's there's something there, but there's the industry is asking for it, right? Like they, they appeared in mm-hmm. front of Congress and said, I'm here today to ask you to regu- regulate this technology. Uh, so I think about that. Uh, I think just cultivating an awareness of what the risks are and this bigger sense of what is the existential threat facing humanity through AI mm-hmm. that yes, that is there are um, seemingly innocent uses of it that can support your effectiveness as a nonprofit leader. And there's potential bigger implications that are yet to be seen or really understood. And we'll see it probably in our lifetime, but that's, that's wild. Right. It's, it's difficult. I, I think the biggest thing that, that, um, gives me pause here is just again the speed of adoption and the question of well how many things have i already been reading that may be less well vetted ai writing than i would like it to be but i didn't know that yet uh, i went to that nonprofit website to read up on their mission work and what's going on and they made a really compelling case and most often when people are you know putting their case forward on their own websites i don't think to myself do I need to go check the veracity of this against three or four other sources? I just kind of assume good intent, well-researched, written. And now it gives me that moment of saying, hmm, do I need to be more skeptical of other people's information until such time as I really feel like I've vetted it against more than one place? I, I started this conversation today with some quotes of information from Wikipedia, which is one of our first and foremost places of saying, do your lateral reading. Don't just believe a Wikipedia entry. I mean, check the sources and make sure that when you click the links that go to places, And um, that's absolutely, I think, the case here, too, that if uh, you're getting a suggested response from an AI-generated thing, um, don't believe that that's absolutely true without verifying that those things are correct. So when it goes up on your website or in your email campaign or wherever else your writing may show up, uh, you are feeling pretty confident that that's what's going on. I do think that our, our best chances right now, if you're going to use these technologies at all, and again, maybe have an internal conversation with your your whole team about um, where do we stand on these things and do we feel comfortable exploring some level of it. But if there's going to be any exploration, I think thinking of it as a, a writing prompt that needs correction 
is maybe a really interesting place to come from. Um, we were just having this conversation in my team at Next and Nonprofits earlier about uh, an organization writing some information that was very much geared for um, insiders. The, the the information was so uh, um, jargoned and, and very specific that my thought is, well, what if we took the same information and said, you know, write this for somebody that doesn't understand anything about this mission yet? Um, you know, there's your writing prompt. Take the same idea, but turn it around and give it a, a perspective of we're trying to get somebody new to embrace this mission. And they don't have these preconceptions, this language, these ideas, and we need to back it up. That can be a very useful exercise. And maybe that's where this tool could be useful is asking it to uh, help us um, see opportunities of, oh, it thinks this is the common way to understand this problem. And that's not how I want it to be understood in the world of our mission. So we need to address that. So, uh, Kari, we're, we're running a little low on time. We're going to have to wrap in just a minute here. I'm just wondering, as you think about, again, moving to the future, are there any um, words of advice or, or things that you're thinking that you want to leave people with as we get ready to wrap today? Yes, I would underscore uh, the earlier points raised around the power of participation and the ability to represent yourself, sort of echoing Camille Eddy's call to action. Mm -hmm. Uh, to not just use it as a tool, but to, like you said, um, as a writing prompt, prompt to be engaged with or fixed, that there are, there are different lenses and lived experiences that we can bring to help hone and clarify the model so that um, we can bring out the best parts of humanity and not just have sort of the worst become the highest common denominator, yeah. but there is sort of that higher level call. Good. We are going to, I hope, learn more as we all stay engaged in these conversations and uh, be able to share with each other our personal experiences with these tools. So I uh, encourage people, if you're not a member of your state association yet, like the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits, wherever you're listening, whatever group you can join, talk to some other humans about what they're doing with this stuff and how it's impacting their work. I think that the more we can stay in connection with each other, um, I am so excited about MCN having so many in-person event opportunities. Again, we we may do with a lot of uh, online things and um, there's still a lot of that happening at MCN for people that um, like to learn that way. That's all there too, but there's also now options for in-person conversation. And uh, for me, that works a little better. So I'm glad that that's um, back in a lot of cases. Uh, but I do, I think, Kari, to your point of staying engaged with uh, what can we be learning from other people that are also trying to understand this tool, uh, staying engaged in places where you're hearing from other people is going to be a great opportunity to do this a little better. All right. We, we've really got to wrap up right now. Uh, I'm just going to thank you one more time. Kari Anaset is the Associate Director of the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits, the Co-Director of uh, Grant Advisor. Thank you so much, Kari, for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Steve. It was great. <laughs>